Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. The Best in the World podcast with Richard Parr. Yes, it's here. Our Patreon page is live. All you've got to do is go to patreon.com forward slash best in the world and you can continue to support our podcast so we can continue to interview the greatest sports stars on the planet. World champions, Olympic champions, world record holders and world number ones and we will find out exactly how they do it and we can deconstruct that knowledge so we can improve our everyday lives and our sporting ambitions and you can continue to listen to this podcast every single week wow so all you got to do is go to patreon.com forward slash best in the world with Richard Parr and there you can contribute to our podcast on a monthly basis starting from as little as one dollar that's less than one pound sterling yes it's an absolute bargain where you can continue to get this amazing knowledge from the greatest sports stars on the planet and not only that is there's extra benefits as well if you decide to contribute even more money to our program If you've done it already, I really appreciate your support. But let's get to this week's podcast where I speak to the Olympic champion rower, Ben Hunt Davis. Ben is now a performance consultant for his own company called Will It Make The Boats Go Faster? And he uses what he learned as an international Olympic champion rower in helping other companies and people improve their own performance. And Ben's story is incredible. Throughout his career, he was unable to achieve the success that he wanted, but he decided to make incremental changes to his routine, to their training, and eventually became an Olympic champion in the men's eights at the rowing competition at the 2000 Sydney Olympic Games. It's an incredible story with Ben. There is lots to learn from him, and he's coming up next on The Best in the World with Richard Parr. The Best in the World podcast with Richard Parr.
Ben Hunt Davis, the Olympic champion from the 2000 Sydney Games. Welcome to the best in the world with Richard Parr. We're going to discuss everything about your amazing career, but obviously that was a while ago. So Ben, why don't we start by catching up with what you're up to at the moment, please? So hi, Richard. Thank you very much for inviting me on uh, on your show. I'm uh, delighted to be invited. Um, so I'm, I, I now have a coaching business, a uh, performance coaching business. Uh, I work with lots of different businesses, uh, the likes of Unilever and Rolls-Royce, uh, through to all sorts of smaller companies. Uh, and we run performance training programs, uh, leadership development. And we, we really focus on trying to help people be as, as, as good as they can be. I mean, the stuff we do is very straightforward. Um, and we just help people do stuff uh, the simple stuff that we know makes a difference. Uh, uh, the company's called Will It Make the Bow Go Faster, and it's been it's been a great journey so far. Oh, fantastic! And when did you have the, the idea of, of doing this this type of business? Was this something you'd always thought about while you were competing, or uh, yeah, how did it come about? Well, when I was competing, I didn't really want to think about what came next. I, I just i I wanted to focus on the job in hand. And I had vague thoughts about doing some sort of corporate development, but I didn't, I didn't, I didn't explore anything about it because um, I said I just wanted to stay focused on what I was doing. And then uh, after the Sydney Olympics, I retired from rowing, and I started looking around. And I, it took probably probably five months to get a job with a training company, and I worked there for a few years. Uh, I then just did a whole lot of speeches for a bit, and then five years ago, I set up this business. I got a business partner, Tom Barry. We set up five years ago and we've been growing every year and this year we'll be 30% up on last year and, and we've got an office full of people and it's, it's, it's been really fun. It's been, uh, it's been very different but, but, but really fun. Mm. And of course with part of your business you've also created a book. Tell us a little bit about that, Ben. Yeah, so um, uh, I can't remember how many years ago. Years ago I, 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 started, I started writing a book and actually had a few clients where I went and did speeches and they said oh you know can we buy copies of your book and I had to keep saying well I I, I haven't got one yet uh, so finally I teamed up with somebody I worked with uh, the first company uh, after rowing and uh, Harriet Beveridge and we we wrote the book together will it make the boat go faster we wrote half a chapter each uh, I wrote uh, a story a bit about what we tried to do and then she wrote a bit of analysis to uh, um, try and make sure it was really applicable to people whether they be in sport or business or family life um and and we published it probably seven or eight years ago um and that's also called will it make the boat go faster um and and it's 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 been great actually it's been uh it's sold pretty well and people seem to seem to enjoy it who read it mm. well i haven't read it yet myself but i'm definitely going to uh having haven't learned about it well, you'll but... have to get a copy i'll send you a copy let let me know where to put one in the post to. Yeah, that would be great. And what we'll also do is we'll put a uh, link to the book on the description page of this podcast to make sure that anyone listening to this show can um, get a copy as well. So, Ben, let's... Great. I think that the, the best way to, to approach this right now is that obviously your book is about your, your rowing career and, and, and how people can learn from what you've learned. So let's start at the beginning then. How did you first get interested in rowing? Uh, I was, I think like quite a lot of rowers, I was, I was not very good at sport. Um, <laughs> rugby was okay because I'm the size of the second row and um, when I was at school you didn't need many skills to be a second row, you just had to be big and being willing to get stuck in. Uh, other ball sports, I mean, it's 
standing on a pitch, missing a cricket ball and not being able to catch it and <laughs> missing a hockey ball just oh, it was a nightmare. I hated it. So um, the first chance I got to do something different, I tried rowing. I didn't, I didn't know anything about it. I, uh, I just knew I, I didn't have to hit a ball with a bat. So um, I gave it a go. And the first couple of years, I was pretty rubbish. And it was really when I was 16 or so that I started to get better. Um, I actually started to get better rugby then as well and started to get better rowing and started to look at the boys who were a year or two above me who were going to either who were competing for England or competing for Great Britain. And I started thinking, hmm, I could do that. Uh, and I just kind of worked my way up through the ranks. As a 16-year-old, I was selected to compete for England. 17-year-old, I set my sights on going to the Junior World Championships and actually missed out on one place. James Cracknell was the last person mm. to go to the Junior World Championships that year, and I was the first person not to. Um, I still haven't forgiven him. Uh, <laughs> and then <laughs> and then the following year, I set my sights on becoming a Junior World Champion, and I, I came fourth and was gutted. So the next year, the only thing I could do was compete at the under-23s and came second there, having thought we should win it, and I was gutted. The next year, I went to the... Barcelona Olympics and it just kind of kept going from there really. Mm. Uh, I just want to quickly go back a moment and you said when you were about 16 you, you started getting better at rowing and you started getting better at rugby. Have you ever looked back and thought why what, what was happening differently there than than the few years before? So I think I think I just you know I just matured a bit. I started to uh, uh, I, I, I'd always been quite tall I mean, I'm six foot six. I, I'd always been quite tall and I think I just got to the stage where my um, strength and coordination started catching up with the length of my arms and legs. And, and, and also, I just started being more focused. Um, at that age, I just I started to set my sights on things and, and work pretty hard. And I think before that, I'd just been a bit uh, just kind of lacking in focus and you know, running around the rugby pitch or getting in a boat was fun. But I don't know how hard I really pushed myself and and so, so physically there was there was certainly a difference at that age but also just mentally being more more engaged more with it concentrating harder and and both bits paid off mm. and you've spoken earlier about just concentrating on rowing and not thinking about what you do next and talking about focus now when you were in the in the prime of your career when you were working towards olympics was it 24 7 non-stop thinking about rowing yeah yeah it was uh i uh, i dropped out of university to go to the barcelona olympics and uh, i mean this was in the days before national lottery grant so you, i had to earn some money to fund my rowing but everything was based on was focused on rowing that's that is the one thing that i wanted to do it's the one thing i cared about and every waking moment was was thinking about exactly that and, and, and i think for the first number of years i i mean i trained my ass off you know we we all worked hard and i was i think i was really dedicated and really hard working i wasn't necessarily that smart i just was willing to train harder and harder and harder. And in the last couple of years, building up to the Sydney Olympics, we, the group I was in, the age group, we went through a massive change where we started to become far more kind of intelligently focused rather than just working hard. Our focus became far more on the incremental improvement on challenging everything we could do. 
we changed our training center, we changed the boat, we changed the oars, we changed our diets, we changed the times of the day that we trained, we changed the way we uh, ran briefings before and after sessions, we, 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 we developed a real learning culture uh, that led to a massive difference in results in those last couple of years. So I, I think, well, in the time I was in the national team, yes, I was always focused on rowing, it was always the top priority, but in the last couple of years, the, the type of focus changed dramatically and it became far, far more focused if it's, if it's possible. Mm, almost uh, working smarter, not necessarily even harder. Um, yeah, def- definitely. Being far more ruthless about doing the right stuff rather than just, just doing more stuff. Mm. Oh, very often... In, in any kind of career, you can keep doing the same thing and you can keep doing the same thing wrong. And very often it takes someone from the outside to look in and say, okay, you want to change this, you want to do that. Was there someone who did that? Was there someone who took it? Or, or as a group, did you almost say, something needs to change here? So um, our crew coach, a guy called Martin McElroy, he had coached the, the eight uh, in... Uh, the 1997 World Championships, and then uh, which I wasn't in, and then in '98 I was in the eight. He coached us, and he was he he knew this the, the way we were training, the way everything was set up wasn't right, and he was trying to get us to change. But frankly, we didn't want to change. I mean, there's the whole thing about you know you take a lead a horse to water, and we just didn't want to drink. We didn't we didn't really we didn't want to change. Uh, we were part of the um, the main British rowing system with head coach Jürgen Grobler. And at that point, Jürgen had coached crews to win gold medals at the Olympics in 72, 76, 80, 88, 92, and 96. You know, his program clearly worked. Since then, his crews have got gold medals in 2000, 2004, 8, 12, and 16. I mean, his track record is <laughs> unbelievable. Uh, and, and training down at the training center there in Henley at the Leander Club, you know, Redgrave and Pinson were down there. I was training alongside them every day, and the training worked for them Every day, every year, they won everything. The only problem was while I was doing it, I lost everything. Uh, and there were years where I did more training than them, but I still, I still lost everything. And so Martin saying we should change was kind of great, but I was looking at Steve and Matt and Jürgen going, well, clearly it works. And then we had the World Championships in Cologne in Germany in 98. We, came, we missed out on the final again. And... I mean, the thing with elite sport, your whole, the whole year, it, it's geared up to the last race. It's geared up to the World Championship final, the Olympic final. And you either feel, leave the year finishing fantastic or you feel feeling like a loser. Uh, and by that point, I'd spent, I'd had nine years of finishing every single year feeling like a complete loser. And I just... It kind of dawned on me that I just, I just couldn't do it again. I couldn't just knuckle down and do the same thing harder and harder again. I, that we had, we had to approach things differently. So, uh, and Martin was kind of talking about that, saying that we needed to do stuff. So, with his his desire to change, and suddenly we our desire to change as well. It took both. Just him trying to lead us to change wasn't going to work. We also needed maybe another kick in the teeth to actually get us to see that, yeah, there, there might be another way. We could, we could do things differently. 
and we had to do things differently if we wanted a chance of getting a different result. Did you ever come close to quitting? Yeah, yeah, I did. I, I mean, yeah, there, there are lots of those moments where you're pissed off having had a rubbish session or having a rubbish week and you're thinking, you know, what, what am I doing this for? Um, but those aren't real quitting moments. Um, in the lead up to the Atlanta Olympics, I had a real quitting moment where, where I was convinced if I didn't do well, I would stop because I just couldn't, I couldn't go through it all again. And, and actually, sometime after we got knocked out of the final, uh, we didn't even make the final. I remember seeing the Russians who had beaten us looking around and just looking at them thinking, yeah, I can't. I can't see the difference between them and me. If they can do it, then, then why can't I? And I, I had a moment actually in 98 um, before we kind of figured out we had to change where probably for a couple of months I was thinking, really, what, what am I doing? I can't, I can't see how I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get a different result. Maybe, I, maybe I'm just not good enough. And for a couple of months, I, I was thinking about quitting and uh, talking to about, uh, about uh, talking to a whole lot of people about it, and uh, and I guess finally something happened, and I decided that maybe maybe I was good enough, maybe there was still a chance, so I so I kept going. But so you have all those small moments of thinking, what the hell am I doing this for? But there were only probably a couple of those big moments of properly thinking, really, what why am I doing this? Hmm. So the the team made lots of changes. Um, you know. How did you? Obviously, we we can look in hindsight and say, well, the the changes work because eventually you won Olympic gold. But how did your team identify which things to change? Was it trial and error, or was it based on research of other teams? How did that work? So there were a few different things, really. So um, we certainly, um, um, when I say we, we had a, a whole host of. Support, people supporting us, from Steve Ingham, our physiologist, uh, you know, Harry Marsden. So we had a whole host of people um, who were fantastic supporting us, and uh, and we were all constantly looking out for different different ideas, different things we could do. I mean, we we actually called the Dutch coach um, uh, and asked him to come and help us. He, I mean, he said no because he was still coaching the Dutch team, but. You know, the Dutch were doing some amazing technical stuff, and we thought, you know, how can we? We'd been watching all sorts of videos of his crews and and trying to work stuff out, and we were, you know, we were willing to to pick up the phone. And yeah, in fact, he said, no, no, it's fine. We we kept studying his videos. We looked for other sources of information. I I remember the Aussies had some great biomechanical data that our physiologist got his hands on, and so we were looking for as many different. Um, yeah, bits of information and data that we could look at. We so some of it was really some of the change was really well researched. Some of it was gut feel. Some of it was just gut feel of you know having conversations, saying this feels like the right thing to do. Because um, because we couldn't measure everything. There's no way we could measure everything. Measuring force time curves on a rowing machine is pretty easy to do, but measuring rhythm in a boat is. It's, it's pretty hard. We, we didn't know how to measure rhythm. And we thought the thing that would determine how fast we went would be our physiology, but our rhythm, the rhythm we could generate. So a lot of decisions were, were on gut feel. And we would, we would talk through what we wanted to do uh, and give it a go. And 
there were probably a whole lot of occasions where we kept going with a new idea for too long, where it wasn't feeling right, it wasn't working, and we were just thinking, well, that's just because we're not doing it properly yet, and we kept going too long. And there were probably other things where we gave up a new idea too soon, and it wasn't that it wasn't the right thing to do, we just couldn't do it yet. Mm. So, so trying to work out what idea. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Just to keep going with and what ideas to can because they weren't right. Um uh, was 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 a really tricky one and and I say we could measure some stuff, but other stuff we just we we, we couldn't measure. Um so so the decision-making piece was, was always really hard. Mm, and I wonder how it worked with the, the team, Ben, because obviously on this podcast, I speak to a lot of people who do individual sports and when they make changes, they can just make changes because it's just for them. You've got eight of you in a boat, sometimes more of you also trying to compete for those spots on the boat. Um how did everyone approach these new ideas? Were there varying levels of people, some embracing it, some not wanting to do it? If there were going to be changes, did you all have to agree to it? How did all of that work? So, um, yes, yeah, so nine of us in the boat. We had a training group of between 12 and 16. Uh, and depending on how we did the trials, the group would change. Uh, so... The, the, the way Martin worked was he wanted uh, he, he wanted to get us all involved in decision making. He wanted us all to take responsibility for what we were doing, rather than him just telling us what to do the whole time. So um, we had the, the, the group discussions, the group planning meetings were sometimes really hard. I mean, we were 
Come to the Olympics, I was 28. I was the oldest in the state. We were arrogant, bloody-minded, pig-headed, stubborn, with, with massive egos. And, you know, the sportsman to sit on the start line of the Olympic Games thinking think you can win, you, you need a pretty big ego. Mm. But And it's helpful when you're on the start line. But when you're sat around a table trying to make decisions, there isn't much less helpful than ego. And... Uh, and and we, we agreed. We'd agreed what was most important. What was most important was the boat crossing the line first. That's, that's, that was the goal. That was what was most important. And we had to be willing in conversations to step back and go, okay, what am I arguing now? Am I arguing so I can be right and you can be wrong? Or am I arguing so that we will all win on the 24th of September? Because really, who cares what happens today? The date that really matters is the date of the Olympic final. So am I making a decision based on that? Or am I making a decision based on the fact that I don't really like you, that you pissed me off, that I'm worried about my seat in the boat, that you know, all those other things that were happening. And so the, the group, the collective decision-making was, was really tough. And, and, and also, you know, people, we might have agreed we needed to change, but we would then disagree about what we need to change. Or you might be able to grasp some things far, far quicker than me. And there are other things I'd get much quicker than you would. And so, so, so change was never, it was never straightforward. It was never linear. At no point did we all learn the same thing in the same way at the same time. Because, because we're different. And whether that was about you know, taking more responsibility for what we did outside the boat, whether it was about how we interacted more effectively together as a group or whether it be about how we put our oars in the water. There were lots and lots of things we were trying to change and develop and improve at the same time and all, all changing, having different start points and changing at different speeds. So it, it wasn't, yeah, I mean, it's, it's never, it's never straightforward. And, and just being aware of where people are and what they're trying to do and trying to encourage them and help them and and you know cajole them into being slightly better was 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 all we could do really. The best in the world podcast with Richard Parr. We'll be back with Ben in just a moment, but I am so pumped that we are doing our first ever crowdfunding on Patreon to help support this podcast so we can continue to learn from world and Olympic champions to find out what they do differently from the rest of us to be the very best. If you'd like to support this podcast so we can continue making it for you every single week, just go to patreon.com forward slash best in the world that's patreon.com forward slash best in the world. And if you get a moment to contribute to our podcast from the bottom of my heart, I thank you. I really appreciate your support. All right, let's continue to learn from Ben Hunt Davis. He is the best in the world. The best in the world podcast with Richard Parr. Did the relationships within the team matter and help improve performance? Like, were you closer to some of the people who you eventually won gold with um, than you were, say, with people eight years before? Um, so the relationships in both critical. Friendships 
were not critical. So some of the guys I rode with in years before were and still are amongst my best mates. Some of the guys I rode with in Sydney, you know, some of us just didn't get on. Mm-hmm. Um, there was there was what there was an interesting conversation we got into. Um, we arrived in the Olympic Village in Sydney uh, probably five days before uh, before the heat, and uh, in the block we were staying in, down in the basement, there were some same meeting rooms. It was actually underground car park with some canvas walls, kind of screening put up to separate out the meeting areas. Um, I remember having a crew conversation in there the night we arrived. And one of the guys um, said to uh, another guy that he said, um, please, please, please keep talking to me if it's about rowing. Anything to do with boat speed, anything to do with rowing, keep communicating clearly with me and just tell me tell me the way it is but the stuff that's not about rowing please for the next 10 days until we finish just don't talk to me <laughs> and and the other guy just looked across the room and went fine because you know they, they knew they didn't get on they weren't mates and and you know all of us were were fine with that because yes we needed to communicate together as a crew about rowing stuff but and if they didn't like each other, there's no point in trying to have conversations where they're going to piss each other off. So let's just be straight and clear. So some of the guys in the eight from Sydney, I'm really good mates with. Some of them, if I see them three or four times a year, that's fine. Um, some of the guys I rode with in previous years, I'm really good mates with. The guys I didn't necessarily get on in previous careers, I generally don't see. Whereas those scenarios, we, we have a reunion every year. And some years, not everybody makes it, but we all stay in contact and we all, we've all got a, a very strong relationship, but it's not necessarily friendship. Mm. I want to talk about psychology, Ben. Uh, obviously, nearly every sports team around the world right now has a, a sports psychologist and giving them ideas of, of how they can improve. Was that something which was happening around that same time for you? And, and what were some of the, the tips which perhaps you may have learnt? Yeah, so Chris Shambrick was our sports psych, and he was fantastic. He was um, he was really good, really good. He was quite new to the rowing team when he started with us. Um, and uh, what what he did was pretty simple, I think. I mean, he had a PhD in sports psychology, and, and I think he used about probably a tenth of his toolbox of stuff he could do. Um, what with us, he just we just kind of really focused on the basics about kind of team dynamics and about a kind of honest learning environment um, and visualization of stuff. He kind of expected us to get, just get on and do that kind of stuff. Um, oh, and resilience was another big thing we worked on. We wanted to be more resilient than anybody, any other crew in the world. That's, that's one thing we worked really hard on, making sure that no matter what happened, we would deal with it better. So we actually we lost our heat at the Olympics. And I know of, I can't think of any other crews that have lost it heat Olympics and, and won the final uh, in, in rowing. It, it's kind of normally the gold medalists win their heats, win their semi-finals and they just keep winning. Whereas for us, we, we screwed up, we made a mistake and we had to be able to deal with it just really quickly, really effectively and get on with it. So so Chris was a critical, absolutely critical part of the crew. I mean, they, the four key people involved were Martin McElroy, our crew coach, Harry Marnar, kind of assistant technical coach, um, Chris Shambrick, sports psychologist, and Steve Ingham, physiologist. They were the four 
critical people, um, and 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 I think sometimes you get the sports psych turning up and talking about stuff which is completely different to what the coach has been talking about or the physiologist or whatever. Uh, and and for us, those four were, uh, were always talking the same language, always. So. Um, Martin was always referring to what Chris, the sports psych, had been talking to us about. Um, we got Chris out in the coaching launch, technically coaching us sometimes, which was quite amusing, seeing how he knew nothing about rowing. But actually, just making sure that he he knew what we were trying to do in the boat. He uh, and 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 we didn't just have sessions with the sports psych and then go away and do what we would be doing before. We'd have a session with Chris, and then. The next session, whether it be sat on the rowing machines or in the weights room, we'd be talking about approaching stuff in the way that Chris wanted us to approach it. And the next session, if it was on the water, we'd be working on it in the way that Chris wanted us to approach it. And it was it was fun it was it was fundamental that that we had we had a joined up approach, so we had the right um, the right psychology, the right mindset with every single thing that we did. Because if we didn't, we we, we lost. Um, I mean, physically, we just we weren't that good, so we needed to make sure that we were faster at learning, more resilient, better together as a group, so that technically we could outrow everybody. Mm, fantastic. Now, with all of this in mind, all the changes that are made, the 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 harmony between your coaches and everything to do with psychology. What I'd like to know now is. What was your typical pre-race routine? Did you have any rituals? Did you have any superstitions? And and had it changed at all over the years? So um, I, I didn't have any superstitions or rituals. The one thing I did is I just peaked up every morning. Um, <laughs> everybody, everybody was constantly saying I was pregnant because I had morning sickness. So whenever <laughs> we were racing, in fact, the week of the Olympics, I was peaking up every single morning whether we had a race or not, just because just cause of nerves. Uh, and people would see me bend double over a flower bed or over you know, the gutter or whatever and give me a slap on the back and say, you know, at least you're up for it today. Um, so, I mean, yeah, the, the morning of the final, I, we went into the main dining hall, struggled with some breakfast. Um, in fact, we got joined. So our, our, our Olympic final was halfway through the... Uh, the game. So at the beginning of the games, and we, we got in there at 5 a.m. that morning, beginning of the games, at that time, you got some nervous, quiet, subdued people going out about to, to compete. By the end of that time of the day, you got a whole lot of pissed people come back from all the nightclubs and <laughs> pubs and bars in the middle of town. And in the middle, you got this mass great crossover. So the, uh, the morning of our final, we were sat having breakfast. I had bowl of cornflakes and some bits of toast and, my tr- and just looking at it thinking I wanted to throw up them but I knew I needed to eat something and just two, basically two nerves to talk to each other just absolutely bricking it and along comes a guy from the British judo team who stank of cigarettes and alcohol I mean he was just absolutely he was just completely wasted <laughs> and of completely oblivious to the fact that we were sitting there yeah, on the biggest, you know, bricking ourselves on the biggest day of our lives. And he just you know, started telling the story about what he had got up to with a Russian judo player that night at some club. And, <laughs> and you, you kind of got all these different things going on. And you just, I mean, it made us finish our breakfast because it was just the last place we wanted to be. And so, yeah, kind of struggled, got, you know, got some food, food down my throat. I think I was sick 
for the first time straight outside the dining hall again before getting on the bus when I got off the bus down at the lake and that was that was my routine I didn't yeah there were no superstitions or rituals I just uh my stomach took control on the day really mm, and then eventually became Olympic champion how, how did that feel when you crossed the line um, so it's so crossing the line. Um, crossing the line. So, so the so crossing the line wasn't wasn't really the moment um, um, because I mean we were just completely out of it. We were completely out of lunch. We'd had our, our race plan had been to go off as hard as we could to get a lead from the first stroke, increase on the second stroke, and keep increasing the lead until we died. And we, over the 2000 meter race, we increased our lead for probably the first um, 1700 meters. And then with about 300 meters to go, we started to die a horrible, horrible death. And I'd spent a lot of the previous kind of minute or two, I guess, every time I took a stroke, and we're doing about 32 strokes a minute, thinking, get a bit Olympic champion, get a bit Olympic champion, get a bit Olympic champion. And then in the last three or so hundred meters, just, just, just dying and um, and crossing the finish line. I remember just having this feeling of relief, of just thinking, we we've done it. Uh, and then you get a bit more oxygen back to your brain, and you start to think a bit better, and thinking we've done it. We've we've done the Olympics, and then and then a bit more oxygen back, and you go, we've we've actually done the Olympics. We've we've won it, and and the realization dawning. Over, I don't know how many seconds as you cross the line, but certainly crossing the line wasn't the amazing euphoric moment. But the medal ceremony was incredible, absolutely incredible. It was a moment I dreamed of for such a long time. I lost so many races leading up to that point. Finally, win the race that the mattered was. It was literally a dream come true. It was absolutely, it was incredible, absolutely amazing the way the way that the, the, the it worked out. Mm, uh, absolutely amazing story of, of resilience and, and success, Ben. Um, I know we've come to towards the end of our, our time speaking together and I can tell from everything you've learned that you've got even more that you can share with people. So if we just take this moment where you can tell us where we can find you online, where we can find out uh, more about how people can get in touch with you if they want coaching and 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 get on the book uh, and get a copy of the book and also if you're on social media or anything like that, please, Ben. So the, the easiest thing is um, if you put in "Will it make the boat go faster?" into Google, it'll come up with our website, which is willitmakethebogofaster.com. You can find out anything about uh, about our book, about our business, about how to help um, individuals, teams, or organisations perform more successful. Um, I'm also occasionally on Twitter at Olympian Ben, um, but the best thing really is to, is to go to the website, we'll make the boat go faster. And also actually, just as you're doing stuff, just have a think to yourself, what you're doing, is it, is it really making your boat go faster? And if you're unsure that it is, then I suggest you find something else to do. <laughs> that's, you know, we spend so much time doing what's in front of us rather than doing the stuff that actually makes our boat go faster. That's one of the key things we learn. That's incredible. It's been it's been really good to speak to you. Thank you for being on the program and thank you for being the best in the world. Thanks very much, Richard. Great talking to you. The Best in the World podcast with Richard Parr.
An amazing insight there from Ben Hunt Davis and the rowing community have been really generous with their time for the Best in the World podcast. So we've been able to speak to quite a few champion rowers. Maybe you want to go back and listen to episode 59 with Annie Vernon. She's a former world champion. We've got a former Olympic champion in the American, Caroline Linz. That's episode 54. Go back and listen to that. The Olympic champion, Matt Langridge, is episode 47. He's been on the podcast and we've had many, many more great rowing champions such as Heather Stanning, episode 36, Mahe Drysdale from New Zealand. He was episode 34. They're all on the best in the world with Rich Bar. They're all on iTunes and I'm sure we'll have more rowers to come. So if you like your rowing, subscribe to this page on iTunes. And if you get a moment, please give us a rating and review. It really matters a lot. A rating and review would really help boost our podcast so we can reach even more listeners and share the stories of Olympic champions to even more people. All right, I've been Richard Parr. You've been listening to The Best in the World and we'll be learning from another champion next week. Do not miss it. But until then, have a wonderful week. Goodbye. The Best in the World podcast with Richard Parr. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.